0: Text for the sermon this morning is 1 Corinthians 13 which we've just read. Beloved in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, a few weeks ago we celebrated Pentecost, the the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the church. Now as we, as we reflect on the meaning of Pentecost, we naturally wonder about its meaning today. What does it mean for our lives today? What does it look like to live with spiritual gifts? What does it look like to live as the spirit-filled people of God, as spirit-filled believers? Now, that's also a question and a challenge that came to the Corinthian believers. The Corinthian believers had been given grace in Jesus Christ. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, 5-7, for in him you have been enriched in every way, in all your speaking and in all your knowledge, because our testimony about Christ was confirmed in you. Therefore you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. That's a wonderful thing to have said about you. But at the same time, Paul confronts some pretty serious problems, issues that were going on in the Corinthian church. He says there's divisions among them. He said there were people who were being puffed up because of their various gifts or because of the faction that they belonged to. They were proud, they were boastful, they were bragging about who baptized them and whom they followed. There was open sin, and there were lawsuits within the church, within the body of Christ. There was division and disunity in their celebration of the Lord's Supper and within the body of Christ, and there's more. Paul confronts them all. So Paul thanked God for for the grace that they had been given, but all the while, he harshly and bluntly confronts their sin, their weaknesses, their shortcomings, He confronts them, he reprimands them, and he encourages them, he calls them to grow in Christ, in how they live as the spirit filled people of God. Now, that fact that this letter is a letter that has both thanking God for the wonder of what he has given them and that this letter is confronting sin is often lost when we come to our text. It is indeed a beautiful passage, an anthem to love, but we must see it in its context because if, we fail, because if we fail to look at this passage in its context, we lose some of its power for how the Spirit speaks to us through this passage. So when you look at the larger context, the context is understanding the gifts of the Spirit, 1 Corinthians 12. There Paul says, now about spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be ignorant. So he's talking about the gifts, and as you go through chapter 12, you see that, that Paul's talking about how there's different gifts, but they all come from the one and only God, the one and only Lord, one only Spirit. There's a diversity of gifts, but in the Spirit, the source of those gifts, we find that unity in the midst of Diversity. 1 Corinthians 12 has that wonderful passage about how each and every one of us is part of the body of Christ and each and every one of us, with all our different gifts, has an important place within the body. And each and every gift, no matter how small, how insignificant, is important to the thriving of the body, the flourishing of the body of Christ. And then in verse 31 of chapter 12, Paul makes a transition. And oftentimes our translations will will put a heading in between 12, verse 31a and the second part, 31b. Now they translate it accurately, but the sense is given there that there is a break in the ideas. But the verses belong together. The sense of what Paul is saying in verse 31 is eagerly desire the greater gifts. And now I'll show you The most excellent way. The two are connected together. In fact, if you turn to 14 verse 1a, which we read after we read our text, verse 31 is the same idea. Follow the way of love and eagerly desire the spiritual gifts. So he makes this transition in verse 31 to look at love. He's not saying don't, Look for the gifts. Now he's saying, eagerly desire them, but travel down the road or the path of love. It is noble and commendable to desire spiritual gifts. We don't contrast the two. Paul's saying, no, they're important, but use them, seek them on the way of love, the higher way, the most excellent way. And what Paul says in, verse, or in, in 1 Corinthians 13 is that love is essential to the spirit-filled life in Christ. Now that word essential can have different meanings. We can say essential in the sense that it is very important. You know, it's essential that you understand that this and this has to be done in this order. It's very important. But we can also use the word essential to speak of The quality without which something cannot exist. As sometimes is said, it is the without which there is not of something. The essence of a chair is that you can sit on it, the essence of a person is their very being. And love is essential in all the senses of the word. It is primary, it is the most excellent way, but it is also the without which there is not of the Christian life. And so that's what we're gonna look at this morning as we look at 1 Corinthians 13. We're gonna see how love is essential to the spirit-filled life. In the first place, it has an essential place. It's foundational. That's what Paul's saying in verses one through three. He says there, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but I have not love, I am nothing. And then third, he says, if I I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames, but have not love, I gain nothing. What he's saying there is he's talking about three different activities. You know tongues, speaking of prophecy, personal piety. These are all things he speaks very highly of. Tongues are incredibly important for the early church. And Paul speaks in tongues. He talks about that, but he guides it by love. He says if I don't have the control of love on the gift of tongues, I'm a resounding gong, a clashing symbol. That beautiful words may come out, but they are actually undone by my lack of love. They're nothing. They achieve the very opposite of what they were meant to achieve. They're jarring to the ears. Paul also speaks highly of prophecy. You know, just after... In chapter 14, he's gonna look at how important prophecy is for the church, speaking God's will. Paul also speaks highly of having insights into mysteries, having knowledge, having faith, but without love, he says nothing. It's nothing. And personal piety, giving to the poor, sacrificing, dying for your faith, this noble expression, being a martyr, for the faith, but without love, worthless, meaningless, nothing. Paul's point here is that love is essential, foundational to life in Christ. Trying to build up the church, trying to build up your life in Christ without love is futile, it may feel like something's being done. You may feel really good about it. Maybe even people around you go, wow, that guy's awesome. Wow, look at what she does. But without love, it's worthless, it's nothing. The Lord Jesus Christ, in Revelation two, says the same thing. He's talking to the church in Ephesus. He's the risen, the glorified, the ascended Lord, the Lord who pours out the Spirit on the churches. And he says in Revelation 2, verse 4 and 5, Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. Remember the height from which you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. In other words, if you do not reclaim your love, your foundation, is gone. You will be removed as a church. Love is foundational, essential to the church, to the existence of the church, but also to our existence, to our life as Christians, as spirit-filled Christians. And that's something that should convict us, but also encourage us. 1 Corinthians 13 is a beautiful passage. But don't just look at it as a positive message about the warm and fuzzies of being loving. Look at your own lives. Think about it. I'm convicted of this. When I look back, when I look at myself, you're arguing with somebody over a theological issue. Think about if you have a friend who's a Baptist and you're arguing over Infant baptism, covenantal baptism versus believer baptism. You scorn him, you destroy him. You walk away and you're, yeah. Little theological road rage happening. I showed him. He walks away. You won that theological battle, but you lost the war. I overstated that there. I don't think any of us actually do that. Hopefully not. But you know, you're convicted. You win the argument, but you didn't win it for love, for Christ, for God. It was about being right. Think about how hard it is, even when you change your mind in an argument. You'll change your mind, but you won't tell the person right there, yeah, you're actually, you're right because the point is not love. The point is not what God has said. The point is your winning. Think about being pious. How many people have given so much for the church, so much for for the gospel, but without the essential attribute of love present? They will be recorded as doing great things, but the people closest to them, who knew them best, have a hard time with seeing the two images put side by side. If you are pious, but you do not have the essential foundational attribute of love present, in the end, you will build something. You may even be remembered for something but it was built for you and not for God. You know, recently in St. Albert, we had elections for office bearers. You had them here too, I see. The gifts of the Spirit are connected to the office of elders and deacons and ministers. Paul says that in Ephesians 4, 11 and following. He talks about, you know, the Spirit has given different gifts for different tasks. First Timothy three, 1 Timothy 3.1, he says it's a noble thing. You know, he who desires to be an overseer desires a noble thing. He commends it. But the question confronts us, do you feel less if you're not an office bearer? And if you are an office bearer, do you feel more important, more puffed up? What are you building your office on the foundation of? is it on the foundation of love? Or is it on the foundation of self-love? You know, that convicts each and every one of us, all of these different examples. When we stop and reflect on our motivation, what are we building on the foundation of? That's the question that Paul puts before us in 1 Corinthians 13, one to three. Because if you're not building it on love, you're building it on nothing. So look for the gifts of the Spirit. Eagerly desire them. Seek them out in the practice of what we call spiritual exercises, serving the Lord. Kenneth Dort speaks about spiritual exercises. That means read, pray, worship. Grow in your knowledge, grow in your faith, grow in how you live out your faith. Hone the gifts the Lord has given you. Sharpen them on the way of Love because they're found there, they're made complete there. But what does love look like? What's love's essential nature? What makes love, love? Have you ever thought of that? Like what? I love you, You what does that mean? I don't know. You ask a husband and a wife, what does it mean that you love me? Boyfriend, girlfriend, what does it mean that you love me? oh, I just, I love you. What does that mean? You know, love is is one of the first things listed in the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5, 22 and 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Love is that thing that is central and primary to the Christian life. That's its place. But what is it? We want it, each and every one of us here wants to be more loving, but what is that love? And what Paul does in 1 Corinthians 13, four to seven is he describes love. He defines it, but he defines it by describing it. doesn't have a dictionary definition. He just shows it in action. Love is patient, love is kind. It does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud, it is not rude, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth It always protects, trusts, hopes, and perseveres. Paul's definition is not abstract, it's not theoretical, it's practical. It's life lived in love. He shows love by showing it lived. And before we dig deeper into those words, we need to understand that 1 Corinthians 13, the definition of love, the essential nature of love, is not simply about being a nice person. I think so often we fall into that with this passage. That guy's just such a nice guy. Always happy, he's always willing to help. That's 1 Corinthians 13. He's a gentleman, lovely woman. But that's an overly simplistic look at love. That's the appearance of love without mining deeply into what makes it love. That's the appearance of love separated from the source of love. God. Love is what we were created for. Love is about focusing on God, the God who created us, being oriented, directed to him. Giving all for Him, not for what He gives to us, but for what He is. And love is to look to your neighbor and give of yourself for them, not for what they'll give to you. That's something that's so convicting for each and every one of us. When you live out love, you do something nice for somebody. It wasn't that lovely. That was really thoughtful of me. Now, your turn. Love is essentially an act of self-love. You don't love for the other person. You love for what you can get. If they don't love me, then what's the point of loving them? Can thank God that he doesn't say that. No, love is the fulfilling of the law. That's what Christ says, Matthew 22. Love is to live for God, the God who deserves your love, the God in whom you exist and find your being. And is to live out your love for God in relation to your neighbors, to others. Love is displayed in our actions with others. We love as God loved us. Now you see that with David and Jonathan. 1 Samuel 18, they met two people who loved the Lord from their hearts. And it says, Jonathan loved David as he loved himself. First Samuel 23, I did a sermon on it once. I should use it here sometime. Inside joke. When I first moved here, I delivered the same sermon. I think two months apart, is that... 1 Samuel 23, Jonathan finds David hiding and he helps him find strength in God. Two men who love each other, but first of all love God and live for the other. Jonathan risks his life to find David and doesn't just help him feel good about himself, he helps him find strength in God. He's directed to the other. So when we look back now at 1 Corinthians 13, when we look at all of these things that that Paul describes in the life of love, what binds them together is they're all other-oriented. They're not conditional on getting what we want. Or others doing what pleases us so that they earn our love. The word that Paul uses for patient has the sense of being long-suffering, you love somebody, and even if they hurt you, you still love them, you suffer. You suffer as you wait, as you give. It says love is kind, there's a sense of being merciful. It's not just being a nice guy, it's being merciful. In other words, loving somebody, giving them what they actually don't deserve, mercy. Love is not, does not boast. Boasting, the word there has a sense of heaping praise. Love doesn't do that. Love isn't proud. In other places, we see it translated as puffed up. Love's not rude. It's not disgraceful or or dishonorable. It says love's not easily, easily angered. The word there has this sense of being in a state of being continually irritable just simmering, boiling below the surface. That something happens and it jumps out, ready to to lash out. Love doesn't keep a record of wrong. The word user has a sense of keeping a ledger, being like an accountant. I remember every one who wronged me. I remember everything they did. That's not love. Love's not delighting in injustice or unrighteousness. When something bad happens to somebody you don't like, you don't rejoice at it. No, love delights in the truth and righteousness. And it always endures, it trusts, it hopes. Now that's convicting because we all fall short. When we look at our lives, we we see that we build it on a foundation that is not love, but when we look at how we live out our lives, we often see that what we thought was love was not actually love. You know, we fall short. But the answer here is not to move on and Just try and accentuate the positive. Try to be nice. No, it is to let the convicting light of love shine in every nook and cranny of our hearts, to expose what is there. We need to shine that convicting light in our own hearts, but also in the life of the church, to long for love to grow for it to flourish in our own lives, in the lives of our children, in the lives of the communion of the saints in the church. We speak of the law as a mirror. We we hold that mirror before us and it shows us that we are not what we were meant and made to be. And it convicts us, moves us to want to be different, to change. It moves us to Christ, to our need for a savior, but the law is the law of love. So the mirror of the law is the mirror of love. We hold that before ourselves and we see that we are not what we were meant and made to be, lovers. It moves us to see our need for the one who loved us first. It it moves us to see God's love, Christ's love. So when we look at living out God's love, Christ's love, it means taking what we have and orienting ourselves and our love to the other. In 1 Corinthians 14, 12, Paul Paul comes back to the, the gift of the spirits. He says there at the last part of verse 12 of chapter 14, try to excel in gifts that build up the church. Love is this control on the gifts of the spirit. When you look at living the spirit-filled life, love means taking what you have and directing it to God, directing it to others. Now, I remember somebody I knew who was part of a church and he, he liked to play music, but he wasn't able to play the role he wanted to play in the church he was in And so he left because the point was he had gifts and if he couldn't use his gifts at that church, well, then he had to find another place because you see the purpose of the church. He wouldn't have said it this way, but what he was saying in his actions was the purpose of the church is to help me to use my gifts. He may have even felt pious about it. His gift had drifted into the category of self-fulfillment. And that's a danger that exists for all of us as well. That we exercise what we think is love in the use of our gifts. But what happens is it drifts into the area of self-fulfillment. The church becomes a place for us to become more not for us to become less and make others more. So look for your gifts. Look for how God has blessed you. But use those gifts for others. Use those gifts for the building up of others, for the glorifying of God, not for the building up of you, not for the glorification of yourself and look for those gifts because that too is an act of love. I think there is this sense of false humility or false modesty in the church that is growing. Well, I don't have any gifts. I I just want to mind my own business. There's others that can do that. They're better. That's not that's not love. That's not humility. That's indifference. That's not walking the path of love, that's being stuck in a rut, being stuck in the mud. It's going off the road. I think that's one of the challenges that we have when you ask a young man, do you wanna, are you interested in serving in office? And they say, no, no, because how arrogant would it be for you to say, yes, I actually, I would love to serve the Lord in that way. Or if somebody wants to go into the ministry, Boy, how arrogant do you think you are that you have those gifts. That thought is there. No, there is no room for that in the walk of faith. Eagerly desire the gifts of love, but do them while traveling the road of love, longing to use your gifts for the benefit of others and for the glory of God. But just don't elevate those gifts above the way of love. Think about if there was a fire in this building right now. Would there be time for false modesty? Why, why don't you help? You know, I'm not really good at you know, helping people. I'm not that strong. Maybe, maybe somebody else could do this. Why don't we, I'll let somebody else do that. I'll just stand here and wait. Or would it be a time for people to argue about why well, you wanted that role? Can I organize and tell people where to go? Actually, I see there's a thing on the pulpit, fire safety plan, you can't. It tells you who has to do it, the ushers. But if you are living love in the church, think of that. All of that falls away when there's an urgency, when there's an Emergency. You're directed in love to the other because their life is in danger and you use whatever gifts you have. Even if it's getting a cup of cold water for somebody, you use your gift. And that's love in the church. That's love in your life. Living for the other, not as if your life depended on it, but as if their life depended on it. And finally, we'll look at love's essential endurance because it says love never fails. When we look at 1 Corinthians 13, we often wanna take that first part of verse eight and connect it to the list of attributes for love. You often see it, it's 1 Corinthians 13, 4 to 8a. And that is nice, it's connected to love persevering at the end of verse seven. But when you look at the original, when you see the structure of what Paul's doing is he says there, love never falls, love never fails. And it's connected to eight verses 13. Love is essentially Enduring. It will never be destroyed, not even in the end. It will never end. And when you look through verses eight through 13, what, you, what you're seeing there is, is Paul's describing all of these other gifts that will fall away or pass away. They are temporal, but love is eternal. You know, all the gifts that the Corinthians were, were, were longing for, tongues, prophecies, piety. Yes, they're all important. But they are for a purpose in time. And their purpose will come to an end. But love's purpose will never end. There will be a time where tongues will not be needed. There will be a time when prophecies are no longer needed. We're giving your life for your faith will no longer be needed. The new heaven, the new earth, when God is all in all, those things will will pass away, but love remains, love endures. And the word that's translated there as cease with prophecies in, in verse 11 is also the same word in the Greek that's used as pass away, which is connected with knowledge. It's also the word that's used with the imperfect being put away and and the putting away of childish ways. There's this contrast with the, the partial or the incomplete and then the fullness. The gifts of prophecy, knowledge, tongues, all spoken well are good gifts to be desired but they're partial, they're provisional. Love endures, it's connected with our creational purpose, what we were meant and made to be. It will continue into eternity. With Adam and Eve and the fall into sin, we fell from love, from true love of God and our neighbor. The Lord Jesus Christ was sent from heaven to earth because God so loved the world. And in his love for us, he gave of himself so that we could live and have new life The way of life after the fall, self-love and wanting to be more apart from love. The way of new life in Christ, the spirit-filled life in Christ is to live by the spirit, to walk the way of love. And that way will never fail. We will walk that path forever. The gifts of the spirit are important. They're not opposed to love But when their place and purpose is exhausted, then love will still remain. Think of it this way. Paul uses the illustration of childish ways, speaking like a child, and putting that away when he became an adult. Children, you can think of this, but also grown-ups. There was a point in your life where it was very important for you to say, dada and mama. That's something that, we desire of our children that they learn to speak. And children, you want to be able to, to speak to say something that you know. You want to call your mom and dad something. And that moment where you learn to say "mama, dada" that was an important, important thing. But I don't think your kindergarten teachers will be impressed. I don't think they're going to put on the report card says "mama, dada" very well. Doesn't say anything else, but says "mama, dada" very well. There's a point at which saying mama, dada, where that passes away and you speak more words, where you speak different words, where you speak as someone who is older than a one or two year old. Think about wanting to have friends in school, being popular, being light. That's important too. But every time you strive to do that, apart from love, children, boys, girls, you're saying mama, dada. Say that to yourself. The next time you don't live out love, but walk over a friend. Hey, I say mama, dada really well. I overemphasize some stage of my life. But the way that endures, that will go on forever, I've ignored. Grown ups, when you feel better about yourself because you won an argument, where you crush somebody, when you think about how you've built up this reputation, how you have been such an important person, or where you break somebody down, you go, I just said dada. Or Mama, good for me. Good for me. That's what Paul's saying to you in 1 Corinthians 13. Learn love. Learn the way that endures, that never falls, that never fails. Yes, desire to live out your gifts within the people of God, but don't elevate them. Follow the way of love. Live the spirit-filled life. It's the foundation. It's the without which there is not. It is the thing that never ends. Excel in loving. Be equipped for eternity. Amen.